Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we're here to talk about week 11 of college baseball, some fun series around the country, a couple big ones in the SEC uh, with Florida and Vanderbilt, Ole Miss, South Carolina. We got Texas Tech and Texas in the Big 12. Uh, you know, some as always, some good ACC, some good Pac-12, another big showdown in Conference USA. So there's a lot for us to talk about, and we'll get to those uh, big series and more here in a second. But first, the Baseball America College podcast is presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the Rapsodo National Player Database at rapsodo.com slash national database. All right, Joe, like I mentioned, uh, we're rolling into week 11 here. Uh, the calendar flips to May this weekend, and uh, it really is starting to feel a little bit more like the stretch run of the college baseball season as, as we move into the last third of the regular season. A lot going on, uh, both in, uh, in the college baseball world and in the sports world. We are not going to talk NFL draft, but as we record this on Thursday, uh, that is certainly dominating the, uh, the sports headlines. But the Major League Baseball draft is a little more relevant to our purposes, and if you're interested in that, Carlos Colazzo this week published a uh, latest edition of his mock draft uh, for, for the baseball draft, which happens this year in July. Remember, they moved it back to All-Star Weekend. So you can check that out over at BaseballAmerica.com. But Joe, it's, uh, there's a lot going on, a lot to, to see here. Uh, and you know, as, as we get to May, you know, we're really hitting, like I said, you know, as, as we enter the final third of the regular season, we're really hitting the stretch run. Uh, in a lot of ways for college baseball. If you don't want to talk NFL draft, we can talk college football playoff expansion ideas. If you'd rather, I, that seems to be the other topic oh, this week. Geez. The, 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 the idea that they, sh that they will expand the playoff, like that's cool. Uh, that's fine. But I, you and I both listen, me probably more than you to the audible, uh, which is the athletics podcast with, with Stuart Mandel and Bruce Feldman. And like they were having this week, as they should, it's a college football show, but like it was, it's probably like a full half hour discussion about like, well, what if it's eight? What if it's 12? And like, will more players opt out? And like, what about, you know, injury risk and like regular season integrity and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, you know, literally we've done this song and dance for years now. I think we all know the ins and the outs of it, but it is April and April and college football time is uh, it's, can be a little dry. <laughs> Indeed, they've, they've been really blessed by the content guides, though, between college football playoff expansion talk and the, the European soccer Super League idea, which everyone immediately transitioned to doing college football versions of, which makes sense. Like, I'm not saying that's a bad idea, but they've at, at what is normally unless you're super into spring football, like in what is normally a bad time to be in the college football content business there. They've really had a lot to uh, to pick at recently. They have. And, uh, you know, fortunately we haven't had to do that because it's, it's been in season, but I can only hope that we get some, uh, <laughs> some of that during, during, uh, I guess September would be kind I mean, of the equivalent spot in our calendar. 
We, I mean, if, if you believe, if you're one to believe in karma, like we should, given what we had to contend with at this time last year, where, you know, we were really, really fighting it to try to, you know, come up with podcast ideas, and written ideas, and, and just making sure we get things up on the website when literally nothing was happening. So, you know, if, if, if karma is a thing this coming off season, we will uh, have some good content stuff coming to us. I can feel it. Expansion talk for the NCAA tournament. In Big <laughs> That's right. Let's Going to 96, folks. I mean, I know who to call for those ideas. So <laughs> we, can, we can engineer it if need be. Uh, but this year's tournament will, again, be 64 teams. Uh, as it as it always is, gotta gotta fill out that bracket with sixty four teams, Joe. And um, you know, the last couple of weeks, I've while I've been making the projected field of sixty four, like I've like run into some intriguing things that I start to write in the intro to the field, and then I realize like I'm writing too long about these things, and that's a good sign that I should really be breaking them out into their own stories. And this week, it was about Fairfield, and you know, we talked some about Fairfield earlier in the week when we brought them into the top 25 for the first time ever at number 23, the Stags, as you may recall, are 25 and 0. They're playing a conference only schedule in the Metro Atlantic uh, because every team in that conference is playing conference only. And because RPI doesn't really function if you don't play non-conference games and the Stags are undefeated, they're ranked second in RPI. And as such, they have perhaps the strangest resume in the country. And I really struggled this week with where to put them in terms of seeds. I previously, they've been in the field since the preseason because Joe picked them to win the Metro. Um, Well done on that account. Uh, But they've always been a four seed. And then this week they're ranked and, you know, they're 25 and 0 and, it just keeps happening. So like at some point you have to wonder like, all right, are they getting off the four line? And this week felt like the week to do it. Uh, but when you start really looking into how to seed Fairfield, I mean, I can make an argument for any of the four numbers. Like you can make an argument for one. I personally don't really believe it, but the arguments there to be had, they're number two in RPI can make a decent argument for them as a two seed, as a three seed, as a four seed. It's uh, it's going to be if if this continues and like this all could change if they lose a series that would really clarify their position for the selection committee that would make them really pretty much like any other uh, conference champion of a, of a smaller conference that dominated its league that would they would just revert to that and they'd probably be a four seed as a result. But if this continues and they enter the NCAA tournament with but somewhere between zero and two losses, uh, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for the committee to put them anywhere in the bracket. You know, they're really going to have to have to to work to figure out where where they belong there. Yeah, I thought it was interesting in what you wrote when you gave us the uh, the 2016 examples of an Alabama State team from the SWAC, and the SWAC is is not altogether different than what Metro Atlantic is year to year in terms of quality of conference. And then Bryant from that year in the NEC, which again, the NEC is typically a little better in the Metro Atlantic, but not so much better that it's a poor example. So you had Alabama State going undefeated in the SWAC and their RPI was not in at large range. It was not in two seat. Um, they were a four. That, that's just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Meanwhile, Bryant did a little more work in the RPI 
and they were in an at-large range type of team and they end up with a two seed. And I thought that was instructive to kind of give you the parameters of depending on if, if Fairfield had played non-conference games, this is kind of the range of what you'd really be looking at. Um, Now, of course that does not help the committee because Fairfield did not play non-conference games. So they don't, that doesn't help us know where to place them. And that's the fascinating and frustrating part about this is that the conversation right now, we we really can't advance the conversation outside of, of giving those types of examples. We can't, really advance the conversation any further than simply saying, if the committee decides to put any stock in the RPI beyond just saying, well, we can't really do anything with it for the Big Ten, the Metro Atlantic to name two conferences. If they put any stock in it though, they're probably gonna be seated higher than a four assuming they continue to win. Of course, this is the caveat with all this. And if they throw it out, they're probably just gonna be kind of your typical dominant small conference champion, most likely seated on a four line. Maybe they move it up to a three. You occasionally see threes. You know, we've seen Ivy League threes. We've seen threes from other Northeastern conferences before. So that's not totally out of the realm of possibility. So, um, and that's really what the conversation comes down to. And we just don't, that's the variable we're never going to know until the field gets released. Yeah. And, you know, I there, there's also an argument to be made, I think, if you, if they go in, like, even if you say, like, well, look, RPI doesn't function for a team that didn't provide it non-conference data and that none of its opponents provided non-conference data either, that it's just a totally closed system. But they won literally every game that they played. Like, I, at that point, I, I, I don't think that that's a four. Like, I don't, I don't know how good I feel about saying that because, you know, you, you did just see this example five years ago of a team going undefeated in, in, a, in its conference and, you know, they still received a four seed. So like, there's precedent for that, but like, I don't know, I just would feel weird about a team with a zero or even a one in the loss column and seeing that team on the four line. But on the other hand, if you, ask me to rank the teams like objectively on like who is who is most likely to win the NCAA tournament I mean that Fairfield may well end up in the bottom 16 of that I don't know so it's uh it's a little bit of philosophy about how you're gonna how you view the tournament and then it's also a big bit of philosophy in how you massage rpi in a year where it's not it already isn't a perfect tool and it's a very very imperfect tool this season yeah i i think one of the the more fascinating things to watch will actually be the the metro atlantic championship series for a couple scenarios because they are playing it as two sets of series they're playing kind of traditional tournament style think of the mlb playoffs but two out of three instead of four out of seven and you know a couple a couple of interesting scenarios here one is Fairfield is undefeated, gets to the final series, and then loses two out of three at large bid, question mark. I think the more fascinating Yeah, we're not one, even into that discussion yet because it yeah. just feels so unlikely because they're so dominant in the league. At, but yeah, there's also that question to be had here. And then there's the secondary, which I think is actually more fascinating potentially. They get to the first round and then lose two out of three, only have two losses on the year, but didn't get to the championship round of the Metro Atlantic tournament. That's even more because the resume will be pretty similar. I mean, what in in true resume form, other than it being for the automatic bid, 
what difference does it make losing to the team in the semifinals versus the finals in terms of the wins and losses resume? Very little, one or, you know, one or two wins, whatever. Um, but in terms of perception, that's a different story. So I think, I think that would be particularly fascinating is if they don't get to the championship round, but still only end up with two losses. Yeah. I mean, geez, my guess would be out. Yeah, me too. Me too. Because there's that MAAC, like to say that like Fairfield is so far ahead of every other team in the league. Like it, it, it if you look, you know, Joe did a good job of breaking this down statistically a week ago. Um, or in the top 25 capsule, I guess, actually. Uh, they, uh, they're, they're clearly the best team. Monmouth is a good team by Metro standards anyway. Uh, it's hard to say exactly how good Monmouth is, but they pitch really well. But if you aren't losing to them, I don't know. I, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's impossible to say. Hopefully for Fairfield's case, they don't have to worry about that, that they go out and that they win the tournament. And at least then all they have to worry about is where they're going to be seated and where they're going to be sent. But it's, uh, it's an interesting one. And uh, it just adds another layer to this can Fairfield go undefeated storyline, which is going to be one of the most interesting ones, uh, at least as long as it continues in, uh, in the final month of the regular season, I think. All right, Joe, let's, uh, let's move on to our picks, uh, the, the, the top series to watch. There it is, uh, that we do every week here, uh, this week, of course, like I said, highlighted by a couple of big sec series and a big one in the big 12. Uh, we'll get to those here in a second, but first check this out. All right, Joe. We're here. We're ready to pick uh, the the best series to watch of the weekend. Uh, I pick four of the biggest. We talk about them, keys for each team to win the series. Then Joe picks one that's a little more under the radar. That if you're uh, if you're looking for uh, something a little little further off of uh, you know the mainstream here in, in the college baseball world to to watch. Uh, we'll, we'll get you covered with that as well. Uh, Joe, let's start, though, in the SEC, one of those, those bigger SEC series. This one in Gainesville, you've got number two Vanderbilt taking on number 16 Florida. This series in the past usually determines the SEC East. It again potentially does so, though Florida is not currently second in the SEC East. They are really the last team that can stop Vanderbilt. Uh, Anyone else would really need a whole lot of help uh, to catch Vanderbilt in the East because, you know, Tennessee already has a series loss uh, against Vanderbilt, as does South Carolina, Um, and Kentucky is much further down in the standings. So, even a sweep of Vanderbilt. However unlikely that is, even a sweep wouldn't get it done for Kentucky. They need help. So Florida is really the last thing really standing in Vanderbilt's way. And Florida needs this series, not only if they want to win the SEC East, but if they want to be in the hosting mix, I think this is an absolute must win for the Gators. It's not going to be easy to get it done. Vanderbilt 
since losing that series to Georgia three weeks ago has, has really righted the ship and, you know, beaten Tennessee, beaten Mississippi state over the last two weeks. Uh, you know, so now they get another big series and this one is in Gainesville, um, you know, with, uh, with Florida, where, where Florida plays just a lot better. They're a lot better team at home than they are on the road. So uh, from a Florida perspective, that is a, a not insignificant part of this is, is being able to host Vanderbilt as opposed to, to show up in Nashville. But uh, an interesting, interesting SEC East showdown there. Yeah, it does feel a little bit like um, this could be Florida's last stand if they're really going to show that they can be something more than what they've been so far, which is a, a good team, not a great team, and certainly an inconsistent team. They've taken care of business. I think the best thing you could say is they've kind of taken care of business when they have, if you look back on the schedule outside of maybe getting swept against South Carolina, which, you know, you that was on the roads. So okay, maybe you lose that series, but they would have liked to have gotten gotten a game and it's very easy to point to, of course at that 14 inning game in the opener of the series and maybe say that was the game but you know they've swept A&M they're coming off of going five and one against Missouri and Auburn so they really are doing the types of things that they need to do to do what they've done which is hang around and kind of still tease us a little bit with maybe being something close to the team or even in the orbit of the team that we thought that they could be um, you know it's interesting with their their we've spent a lot of time focusing on their pitching and I think rightfully so because it just doesn't it doesn't look anything like we thought it would and I don't mean look in terms of the way they use pitchers although that is also true but you know you look at the conference stats and of the three guys we thought were going to be perhaps the best rotation in college baseball left which Mason and Barco in conference play Barco's been the best of the group and it's you know maybe not all that close um, which is damning a little bit with faint praise because you know Barco's been been solid um, I mean, in not, fairness, we are talking about a guy who could potentially be the first overall pick in next year's draft. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. But, uh, you know, I, I think about, you know, Florida's just been, they've, they've gotten um, a lot of good work out of Christian Scott and Franco Alamon. And of course, they've played around with their roles a little bit. But, but those two guys, being what they've been, especially in conference play, has been so big because it's given them a little bit of flexibility. Um, you know, they were able to do an opener thing because those guys were able to give them the quality work. Whereas if if that had not worked out, they'd really be scrambling now. And maybe they would have just gone back to the traditional roles and rolled the dice a little bit with that. But um, so that, that's been, that's been big for Florida to kind of feel like maybe a little bit steadier with, with those guys leading the way there. Um, but you're right. I think this is, I think this is the series that if this is it for Florida. I mean, they've got a series of Arkansas coming up, but if they lose, if they lose this series against Vanderbilt, like um, you know, that, that Arkansas series is late. Um, so it feels like by that point, you know, it's last weekend of the season. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, it, it very well might be too late to do anything beyond just kind of give them a nice little piece of momentum going into the SEC tournament and, and into the postseason. So this is this is huge, it feels like. Yeah. And I don't know precisely like I, I, I said last week that the the blueprint for beating Vanderbilt is home runs because you're going to need to beat one of rocker or lighter. And to beat a pitcher like that, you're typically doing it by hitting home runs against them. And, um, you know, that's the last three weeks they have lost one of the games that those two guys started. And it's, uh, it's happened with, with solo home runs and in all care home runs in, in all cases, 
And, you know, this, uh, this Florida team has, has power. So, you know, to think that they couldn't do that, you know, would be, would be wrong. Um, you know, Judd Fabian has seven home runs in SEC play alone. Nathan Hickey has four. And, um, Kareem McMullen has four. And there, there's other power sources to be found throughout the lineup. Uh, but really, I mean, what, it's, it's hard not to just come back to the Florida pitching. And, you know, they really need to, to, to find a way to be more consistent this weekend, whatever, whatever form that takes, whether that's, uh, you know, ultimately they're going to need one of one of these guys to, to really step up. And, you know, Barco has been good. Uh, Alamon has been good. Christian Scott has been good. They, they're going to need a little more out of Tommy Mace, I think, but somebody's really going to have to step up and match with rocker or lighter. And they don't need to do it all game long. I don't know that rocker is going to go CG again. And, you know, lighter certainly hasn't done that, but they're going to need somebody to, to step up and at least for the first few innings, go toe to toe with those guys. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's not a, it's not a small ask. It's not a huge ask either against a, a Vanderbilt offense that is good, but not, you know, world beating. Uh, but it is, uh, it is something that, that Florida is going to need at, at some point this weekend, they're, they're really going to need somebody to, to really step up early in the game and, and you know, just kind of take control uh, and get Florida through at least four to five good, clean innings against Vanderbilt. Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, I think that's right. I mean, it, it, this is a feelings thing, not a, a data-driven thing, but it, it just kind of feels like what can't happen with Florida is they start spinning their wheels early in games with, you know, it not work, no matter who ends up on the mound to start games, whether that's they want a guy to go seven or a guy to go four, they'd probably take either as long as it was good quality innings. But it, it just doesn't feel like that's going to be, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but getting down early is not a recipe for success. <laughs> but against Vanderbilt in particular on the day's rocker and lighter pitch, like that's just so tough, man. And this Florida team has just been so inconsistent and has struggled so mightily with the best teams on its schedule that it just, and it also has struggled frankly with being the type of team that seems like it's really capable of doing a thing where they have the emotional comeback and they really, um, you know, have the, the juice and the fight to, to come back in those tough situations. That's been something that has been missing at times this season where they seem to not only play up or down to their opponent, which would be good news for this weekend. Cause you obviously have to play up for Vanderbilt, but just do they have the juice to, if they get down early, to really do what you need to do to fight back against arms, the quality of what Vanderbilt's going to be throwing out there. So even more so than normal, I think spinning their wheels early and getting in a hole is just not going to be something that is going to make me very confident that Florida's going to have a chance to win the series. The good news for Florida uh, is that should it come to it, should they be able to win one of those first two games, they're probably going to feel good going into Sunday. I don't know precisely how Florida has its rotation aligned uh, this weekend, but you know that's been where Barco has, has been living. And uh, if, um, if, if, they, if they get there and they have him in reserve for that, that last game of the series, um, you know, you, uh, you, you do kind of have to, to feel a bit better about that. Now, Florida's play, Florida's kind of move things around, obviously, and like 
they've had double headers the last couple of weeks. So it's kind of hard to tell where they might land on him. But Barco did most recently pitch on Sunday. So if he remains there and if Florida is able to win one of the first two without him, uh, they would definitely feel like they had the advantage on the mound on Sunday, which is, is not insignificant. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I got asked, um, I was a guest on a podcast the other day and I got asked, did, you know, the, the, has the, is the formula out on Vanderbilt, you know, in terms of like, if you can, if you can get to, you know, rocker or lighter and, and win that game that you can, they can kind of be had on Sundays. And it's like, well, yes, but also like we say it, like, it's like, if they can win one of those two games and I'm not, this is not a criticism of your point. Your point is hundred percent valid. I, and I agree. Like if, if they've got Barco on Sunday and they're going and there's a rubber game on Sunday, they feel pretty good about that. But, um, you know, I just, I kind of found that funny that like, that, that's been described as like cracking the code on beating Vanderbilt. It's like, well, sure. Yeah, I guess, you know, like beating one of those two guys that that is cracking the code. Now go it, go and do it. You know, that's the, I mean, that's also been true all season long. It just, it took until right. Georgia for anyone to, to pull it off. Exactly. Like, it, I think it's just the novelty of the idea that for so long, it seemed like no one was ever going to be able to do that. The fact that someone did now was kind of, I think collectively the rest of the sec in particular was kind of hoping it'd be like, aha, here it is. We, we got them now. If we could just win one of those two games. Um, but I, you know, I frankly, I'd like to see it just from a neutral observer standpoint. I would kind of like to see that because I think, it'll be instructive for us. I think it's good to continue to see Vanderbilt winning, trying to win these rubber games and trying to figure things out in that third game. So I think, you know, I, I would be most fascinated to see that because it, it would be cool to see if, you know, Florida can pull that off, especially with, with Barco on the mountain and see him in that spot, but also just to see Vanderbilt try to continue to figure it out on the fly. Cause they're very much a work in progress still. Absolutely. Well, we, uh, we'll definitely talk more about this series on Monday uh, when we come back here to review the weekend. Uh, you can be sure of that. So we'll, we'll get into that then. But for now, let's, uh, let's flip over. Well, let's just stay in the SEC. Let, let, let's round out SEC weekend here. Uh, you've got another intriguing series, intriguing in a little bit different way. But we've got South Carolina taking on Ole Miss. And these are two teams that are coming off of difficult series losses. Uh, South Carolina losing, uh, or excuse me, I, just kind of difficult stretches. Uh, you know, like Ole Miss, it's more than just one series loss. It's, it's four straight now. And then South Carolina, you know, took a, took a tough one at home against Arkansas last week. Both of them are still in the hosting race. I don't think this is a must win in terms of the hosting race, certainly not for South Carolina, but probably not even for Ole Miss. Um, but it, it sure would help to win this weekend to, to get a series win, especially for Ole Miss's case to, to break out of it. Um, but it's, uh, it's just two teams kind of in an interesting spot. Where are they going? What is, what is the direction? This could be a pivot point on the season uh, or maybe it's just another week in a, a very difficult SEC 10-week stretch of, of regular season games. But it's uh, with them both coming off of challenging weeks and now facing each other. I mean, somebody's got to come out of this with a win, and, and it's going to be interesting to see who is able to, to rise to that occasion. Can you imagine, like, if Ole Miss, let's say Ole Miss goes on a run here and they end up, deep postseason run, whatever. Can you imagine like the stories that are going to get written about like that big comeback against LSU is like 
the turning point. Like that, that I mean, that story has basically already been, been written and is just waiting to be published. Um, because that was, I mean, and, and understandably so, I say that kind of with a, with a little bit of snark, but um, you know, maybe that, maybe that is something. And I think one win like that, I think can not only spark a team, but also I think it's how they pulled it off that I think might be a little bit instructive. You know, they, they turned to some guys that haven't been in big roles and I, you know, Kemp Alderman, I guess, is the, the, the top guy you think of a guy they thought they were going to red shirt. They pulled a red shirt on him, you know, the midweek prior to the LSU series, he ends up hitting a big home run in the LSU series on a team that's kind of looking to find extra bats because of, you know, the injury to, to Tim Elko. And of course it never hurts to have extra bats anyway. Uh, I think that's a pretty big development, but it's also guys like Jack Dougherty in the bullpen uh, with what he gave them against LSU a guy who, again, had only thrown two other times this season, and they were had all come in the previous 11 days. Um, now, the negative aspect of that is that it's clearly an Ole Miss team that is still – is like retooling in late April, which is probably not the position they expected to be in. So that's kind of the negative side of that. But I think the, the positive aspect of that is, like, you never know when you're going to find something. And these are all talented players. They're, they're at Ole Miss for a reason. So maybe they do find something along the way. And – I think it's actually a pretty decent matchup for Ole Miss. Not only is it at home, that helps. But I also think, you know, I saw last weekend that unless something changes pretty quickly, and I guess it could, South Carolina's offense is really scuffling. And I think Ole Miss with McKaysey and Hoagland and then either McDaniel or, or Diamond, because Diamond actually threw the ball well last weekend too. And I think that's a big development for this Ole Miss team because whether or not he's the Sunday starter or in another role, they are going to need him. You know, he's a guy that is going to be a big part of their pitching staff moving forward, regardless. I think that's a pitching staff that can get South Carolina. Um, again, unless, unless something changes and this is a breakout performance for South Carolina, but if it's the South Carolina team that, you know, I saw last weekend against Arkansas that was just really scuffling and was seemed to be struggling with approach and uh, seemed pretty frustrated. Um, you know, I think, the Ole Miss pitching staff just doing kind of what it's done to this point, save the bullpen. I just mean that the starting pitchers and that their top guys, I think can really do a number on South Carolina. If South Carolina doesn't come out and look like a, a better offensive group than what I saw last weekend. I'm, uh, I'm going to take back what I said about this not being must win for Ole Miss. This is, this is must win. Um, they go to college station next week. Um, A&M obviously is not going that great right now. They're, looks like they're going to miss the, the postseason. Uh, but then Ole Miss closes with Vanderbilt and at Georgia. And, you know, I wouldn't want to go into those last two weeks needing, <laughs> needing wins against those two teams in, in those situations, if, if you could avoid it. Um, you know, so if they can take advantage of a home weekend here, uh, stop the bleeding, you know, really shore up that, that SEC record. I, I think that would be, uh, that'd be very optimal for the Rebs. Uh, and, and the other thing is they just, they, they can't let this slide continue. I mean, it, were they to lose this weekend? I mean, you're looking at, you know, probably being 11 and 10, assuming they don't get swept in the SEC. And like, you know, it, it, you can still host out of that. Like those last three weeks, it would just put a lot of pressure on you to, to win all three of those series. But I think you got to take advantage of this weekend here. And to your point, Joe, like, I think you're right. Like, I think this is a pretty good matchup for Ole Miss. Uh, their offense sure seems like it's better than South Carolina's. 
And, you know, as long as they get Nikhazy and Hoagland doing what they're capable of uh, with the state of South Carolina's scuffling offense right now, like they should be able to, uh, to take care of business at home. And if they don't, I think it becomes, you know, depending on how those games go, but that, that would be a pretty significant warning sign for me um, that, you know, Ole Miss is just not going to come out of this slide that, Whatever, whatever the the reasoning, whether it's Elko's injury or you know just the the brutal month long stretch they've been in now in terms of scheduling, um, it, it's just not going to happen for them. So I, I think they do need to to show something this weekend at Swayze with uh, what I imagine will again be pretty significant crowds. Agreed. You know, I think this is this series is big too. I mean, th- even throwing the the, the record and, and what that means in the big picture aside, I think a series win this weekend would go a long way towards showing us that like, this is still a really good team and the schedule was just tough. And for the most part, you know, you throw the LSU weekend out and maybe LSU makes a run and makes that series look better. Who knows? But you know, you throw the LSU series out and it's, it's a long string of really good teams that Ole Miss has played. And they really haven't, I mean, there's been largely doing what you'd expect. Like, okay, you go to Florida and you lose, you go to Starkville and you lose, you, you push Arkansas as hard as you can push them at home. Like, okay. Like none of that really felt that bad. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, there's a reason we're still hanging on to them in the rankings and never really truthfully debated running them out of the rankings. Um, You know, it's, you know, I, so anyway, I, I say all that to say winning a series here, I think would confirm the suspicions we have, which is this is still a good team and they've had some speed bumps in the road. Sure. They had a really tough stretch. And they played fairly well in that stretch. They never really got steamrolled. They had some, like I said, they had some ugly losses, but they never, they weren't taking on water. They weren't getting swept. And okay, the LSU series was weird. I, I get it. But I think winning this series would set things back on track. And, and all, the, all the big picture goals are still right there in front of them because, you know, let's not forget that the SEC being the conference that it is, it's not like you have to really you know, blow everyone away in terms of your SEC record to host. Um, you know, there's there's been some fairly just eh records in the SEC that have hosted before. So, I mean, they need six more wins, maybe six to seven. Yeah, yeah. There's been you know 17, 13, 16, 14 type teams that host all the time in the SEC. That's and that's certainly not out of reach for for this group. And if they if they win this weekend, perhaps they're still on course for that. You know, you don't like the chances in the Vanderbilt series, but it is at home. Um, but you know, the the other two series they have in front of them are. are winnable series at bare minimum yeah i mean win this weekend and then win in college station and then just don't get swept and you're at six wins and that's 16 sec wins and you know maybe find another somewhere along the way or look good in hoover and bam you're you're in fine shape as a as a host so um you know, we'll uh, we'll see where it goes but I, i i think you're right i think this is a good matchup i on the gamecock side Obviously, they got to find a way offensively. Um, Ole Miss is going to hit this weekend, probably. Like, it's just really hard to slow that offense down. Ask almost literally any of the teams that they've played, all of which have good pitching staffs. Uh, you know, so the offense is going to have to do something. And, you know, from a South Carolina side, you can look at the Ole Miss bullpen and say, well, if we can just wear Hogland and Casey down, and there are some examples of that happening, other examples of it not happening in SEC play. Uh, but if you can just do that and get to the bullpen, maybe our bats can, uh, can wake up against this bullpen. Um, that would be the hope, I suppose, from, from the South Carolina side, but they really need to, to find a way to get, get some offense 
in this series. I, I would not want to get into a pitching matchup with uh, with Ole Miss um, or, or, or need to rely on that. You know, I, I just don't think you can hold the Rebels offense down for for 27 innings. All right, let's uh, let's head over to the Big 12. Joe, this series uh, is in Austin. We got Texas up to number three in the rankings, hosting number 13, Texas Tech. I got to be honest, a week ago, this series looked so much juicier than it does now. <laughs> but Texas Tech lost that series to Baylor and fell to eight and seven in the Big 12, took themselves out of the Big 12 title race in the process effectively. And now this just feels like a trap series for Texas because they have a series in Fort Worth in a week uh, against TCU that's going to decide the Big 12 almost no matter what happens in this series. But if you take your eyes off of this series, the Red Raiders are still plenty talented enough to, to upset Texas in Dish Fox. So, oh, very interesting. Um, you know, I, I have no doubt that, that Texas can keep its eyes on, on the current weekend, but, you know, just knowing what's coming in a week and, you know, having just seen Baylor go into Lubbock and beat Tech, becoming the first team to win a series in Lubbock since 2018, you know, I, I just think it would be a little natural if there is a little bit of an emotional letdown uh, when you start looking at this series, if, if you're the horns. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, can it really be a, a trap series when everyone like looks at it and goes like, oh, there's a trap series. But I think you're right. Like, because if there's one thing we know about Texas Tech, and this is not just me saying this, I, I hear this from coaches. Like, I've, I've talked to coaches who like unprompted will just, you know, when you're, when you're just talking about different teams, we'll say like, man, I, you know, I really like how that Texas tech team plays. They just, they play angry. They play with an edge. And I've even had come co- some coaches say like, I wish I could get my team to play, <laughs> to, to play th- that angry and with that much of an edge. And so, you know, I think if, if anyone thinks that Texas tech is now that they've taken on a little bit of water and looks like they're just not going to win the big 12 this year, if anyone thinks that team is just going to kind of fade or maybe fold up and they've had some injuries and some adversity and yada, 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 like that's just not going to happen. That's not how that program operates. So this does feel like an opportunity for Texas tech to come out pissed off and, and win a series in Austin and kind of, uh, you know, shake things up a little bit. And I think, you know, well, first of all, one thing I thought about with this series is the, some tasty matchups with, you know, JC Young against the Texas pitchers. Like that'll be, um, those, those will be some, some delights for the uh, evaluators and, and, you know, the, the scouts in attendance and all that stuff. That should be, should be a lot of fun. Again, for a player in Jace Young that I don't think a lot of people have really caught up to just how good he's been this season. So that will be a good head-to-head matchup there. And I think this is where I think Texas should be very thankful to have a time Madden on its staff because I think one of the things that will be important is that don't let Texas Tech come out and get a flying start because they are going to come in here probably super motivated. Not only do they have a lot to play for and are they angry, but you know, they, you know, want to play well against Texas. You know, it is, it is Texas and Texas tech. This is, this is a thing, you know, indeed. So I, I just don't think it's in Texas best interest to give tech an opportunity to come out flying fast. And so I think Ty Madden's ability to, to stifle that right away, I think is going to be a big, big deal. The other thing I'm interested in is, 
can the Texas offense, which has been better we've, as the season has gone on and has shown some improvement, can they do to Texas Tech pitchers what Baylor did to Texas Tech pitchers in two out of three games? Because if you're, if you're a better offense, if you're an improving offense, I'd like to see you kind of do to the Texas Tech pitching staff, which all of a sudden looks a couple of guys short and they're starting rotation with, you know, guys like Monteverde, chief among them, really scuffling at this point, you know, can you really take advantage of that as an offense and take it to them in that way? That, that's what I would like to see Texas do if they're truly going to prove to be a different offense than the one that, you know, we saw the first, I don't know, whatever it was, five or six weeks where we kind of went, uh, I, you know, this giant looks like an average offense again. So this is an opportunity to, I think, make some hay and really prove again that, that they are on the upswing as a, as a lineup. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's a good point. The tech pitching staff is clearly fighting it a little bit. I think pitching in Austin versus pitching in Lubbock will probably help a little bit this weekend, but obviously that cuts both ways. And uh, tech is going to have to find a way to win on Friday, which hasn't been the easiest thing for them. And unfortunately, this Friday, that means beating time added. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that's a tall task for any team. Um, you know, especially a team that doesn't really have a guy that's going to match up with him in, uh, you know, any sort of traditional sense. So I, I think you're right. I think Texas has to really take advantage of that time added start, get off to uh, a, a good start this weekend, not let Texas Tech have any hope that this weekend is going to be different, that they're going to bounce back, that, that they can use that anger to their advantage. Uh, I, I think that they have to find a way to do something on Friday night as difficult uh, as that may be. You mentioned Jace Young, and I'm excited to see him face this Texas pitching staff too, but they need Jace Young to be the Jace Young that he was like two weeks ago when he was going crazy. He hasn't homered in nine games. Um, it's not a slump. It's, uh, it's just he hasn't been – he was scorching, scorching hot before, and now he's just kind of – normally like what he probably is as a, as a hitter uh they're going to need him to recapture some of at least a little bit of that fire that he had uh a few weeks ago and again easier said than done in a difficult hitting environment against a really good pitching staff yeah it speaks to the high expectations we have for him you know he still had two two hit games against Baylor but you know as you were saying that I was like yeah no that's right you know hasn't been quite as but but, you know, it's, it's a lack of home runs and also just that, you know, he came out of that TCU series just thinking like, oh, my goodness, this is, you know, this, this guy is, you know, the best hitter in the country right now. And it just I mean, I, I watched I, I, I was in the, the tech uh, uh, media after that. And all anyone could talk about there was like comparing him to his brother. And look, I got it at the time. But, you know, it also is a reminder, like there was there was pushback from, you know, Tim Tadlock and. Uh, you know, like, okay, you know, yes, he's, he's doing this and it's amazing and we love having him, but also remember how good Josh was, um, before we, you know, really try and compare the two of them. And yeah, I mean, like, he's not going to be better than Josh Young all the time. Like some weeks he will be other weeks. He won't be. And when he's not, they need to have some other answers in the lineup and against Baylor, they just didn't. Cause it wasn't just a pitching problem against Baylor. They didn't score that many runs against the bears. Yeah. I think, you know, that, that, yeah, that, that's a good point. Like, I think that has snuck up on me a little bit. And especially now that they're without 
Dylan Noisy mostly. And, you know, Kurt Wilson was having some nice moments and he's down now too. Like it does, it, the lineup is a little bit short. Like, you know, in terms of now there's a lot of guys here that been in the program a long time, guys that coach Tadlock clearly trusts, you know, um, and some of those guys have really answered like Drew Baker has had, you know, a really nice season and, you know, has, has been better than he had been to that point. And, you know, Easton Morrell in conference play has been really good, but it does just kind of like, once you get past JC Young and then you really like what Cal Conley's done, like, I think, you know, he's a, a level better than, than what we're talking about. And then after that, like, where are your impact bats? And that, that really, once they started getting injured, that really kind of snuck up on me. And I don't think I'd really fully accounted for that. Yeah, it's um, it's tricky. I mean, we expected we ranked this team in the top five coming into the year, uh, knowing that the pitching staff had to reset, knowing that they were very young offensively, somewhat trusting that Tech would just reload the way that they have, somewhat expecting the lineup to grow up. The problem is that all these injuries they've had, like they're now forcing even more young players into bigger, more prominent roles. And I tech, it's not an, there, there is a bottom of this well somewhere. And I think we're starting to find it. And, you know, it, it is, uh, it's unfortunate that this is the way it's happened, but in some ways it is kind of predictable that, like, okay, some of those younger players weren't quite ready to, you know, play at their ceilings. Like, that's not a surprise. That happens to freshmen all the time. Um, but if things don't go, if things don't align for you just right, then you really need those players. And if they don't rise to the challenge uh, or just aren't elite level players right away, if they're merely just good players, uh, it gets exposed a little bit, and and I do feel like that's something something like that has has happened to to Tech over the last few weeks here, as it's been dealing with all these injuries. All right, we'll uh, we'll definitely have more on that uh, and more on Texas in a week. Uh, you can be sure about that, but uh, definitely more on this on Monday. It's uh, it's going to be interesting how this goes, no matter what, because it also has hosting implications. Tech really needs to, to find a way to, to get something going if it wants to stay uh, in the hosting mix. Uh, all right, Joe, I got one more series. Uh, I'll get to that in a second. I will first note, though, that we are not talking ODU Charlotte. That is a series that is worthy of your time. Um, but we have talked ODU Charlotte for uh, in consecutive podcasts, and Joe is going to that series this weekend in Norfolk. Uh, and so we will certainly talk more ODU Charlotte on Monday. Uh, but as they are in, in the middle of this uh, four-game home-and-home or eight-game home-and-home series, uh, Charlotte won the three, game, three of the four games in Charlotte last weekend. ODU now needs to find a way to flip that. Uh, Charlotte would probably even just with the split uh, – be quite happy and probably be very comfortable uh, in the in the hosting mix and in control of Conference USA's East Division. So a big weekend in Norfolk, but I don't know how much more Joe and I have to say about a series that we've we're, we're, we're going to talk about. Uh, 
in great length, have already talked about in great detail and, and will continue to do so on Monday. So uh, keep that one in mind. But the fourth series I wanted to highlight, Joe, is in the Big Ten. And we've got Indiana hosting Iowa. These are two of the top four teams in the standings. You got, you got Nebraska and Michigan, and then you got these two teams. We've talked a lot about how many teams can the Big Ten get in, and on and on and on. Right now, we have Iowa in our projected field, Indiana out. That is the reverse order of the standings. Uh, but the reason why that is, is because Iowa has played a much tougher schedule to this point and faces a much easier schedule down the stretch. After this weekend in Bloomington, the Hawkeyes will not face another team that currently has a winning record. So they should be able to make a significant amount of hay down the stretch. I guess in Iowa, they grow corn, probably soybeans too. Probably not so much on the hay. They're going to grow a lot of corn over the last month of the season. But Indiana, meanwhile, uh, they have the slightly better record now, but they have not faced the teeth of their schedule. That starts this weekend. Uh, so if the Hoosiers are going to get into the NCAA tournament, uh, they're definitely going to earn it. And that starts this weekend uh, with, with uh, what is a, a really significant series for them against the Hawkeyes. So, you know, what's, uh, what's interesting, and a uh, friend of the show, Dargan Southerd, uh, who covers Iowa uh, for the Des Moines Register, the Iowa City Press Citizen, wrote about this this week is that don't look now, but this Iowa team is in pretty much the exact same position it was in in 2018 and 2019. And it did yeah, not literally every well. year. <laughs> yeah. So this would be now I would I would argue this isn't necessarily this is not necessarily a counter argument of, of what Dargan said, because I think that's true. But and it's also this weekend, isn't it? It's always yeah, like it's always start of May. May. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was there They're in playing, 2019. Usually it's a non-conference series. It's Oklahoma State or it's UC Irvine. But yep, that's right. Yeah, I was there in 2019 for a series win over UC Irvine that ended up mattering zero. Uh, and yeah, in 2018, you're right, it was Oklahoma State. And then Iowa just has these weird like collapses down the stretch. And if they win this series with Indiana, like what I'm inclined to say is if they win this series in Indiana, like it should be smooth sailing. Penn State, that's a series they should handle. Illinois might be tricky, but it's at home. Northwestern, they should handle. Michigan State, they should handle, especially when you consider that because there's no Big Ten tournament, you know, Northwestern and Michigan State really aren't going to have a whole lot to play for. And that doesn't mean teams roll over, but they could also be, you know, messing with the, their lineups and rotations and just kind of like, you know. It also doesn't mean that they roll over. Like, I'm not here to suggest that they will, but it's on the table. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, these are humans, right? Like, there's just not, not a whole lot to play for anymore. And you, especially, you know, you know, anyway, yes, that is on, that is on the table. But, um, but this is the exact same position, because that's the thing about it is, too is that in the years Iowa has been in range of an at-large bid and then gone down the stretch, like it's not like they've lost like tough series. It's, it's usually dropping a series to a team that is way out of the race in the Big Ten. You know, like one year it was Penn State, and then I think that was 18, and then 19 it was Northwestern. And those two teams were RPI 200-plus, completely out of the race, and Iowa just stubs their toes. So they're in the same – uh, position here, especially if they win the series against um, against Indiana. One thing, Big Ten at large, by the way, like uh, I'm glad you brought this series up, something I've been thinking about. And I, I told you this offline, I think, but I understand why they didn't have a Big Ten tournament um, because they wanted to maximize the number of regular season games. I got it. 
Um, it is kind of a bummer though for programs like you know Northwestern and Rutgers that are clearly better this year. Like getting to the Big Ten tournament would be a big deal for those programs, and it, it is a little bit of a bummer that they're not. And maybe they will or won't make it. There's still a lot of baseball to play. Like they you know they would or would not have made it. But those two teams are clearly better, and they're not really going to get to kind of celebrate that and build on that in the way they normally would with the with a Big Ten tournament. So that is a little bit of a bummer for for me anyway. Speaking of Rutgers, uh, they fresh off of winning a series at Michigan, dealing the Wolverines their first series loss of the season. Uh, they're now playing Nebraska, which is currently leading the Big Ten. So big couple of weeks for the Knights. And, uh, you know, given what happened last weekend, if they could double up on it, like all of a sudden we're going to be talking about Rutgers in a completely different way. Mm, but yeah, anyway, interesting. Yep. Um, this weekend, I, the, the thing about Indiana – uh is like they've just been i don't know i i just haven't they've, they've been playing this this lighter schedule and at times they really take care of business and at times it feels like they fight it a little bit uh so i'm interested to see what that looks like this weekend the last time indiana played a big series it got swept in columbus now since then uh they've only lost once that was at northwestern they uh, took two against Illinois. The third game got uh, got rained out, and they won that series against Northwestern. And then they played Minnesota last weekend at home and scored 39 runs in three games because the Gophers apparently have no pitchers now that Max Meyer left. Um, so, all right, what what have they learned over the last three weeks? Have they locked in on something that they can really take advantage of? I, I think that it's important that Grant Richardson has been better of late for them. Uh, but they're going to need, uh, uh, but you know, they need, they need the big guys to, to come out to play offensively the way they did, uh, you know, last week, you know, it, it, it's Ashley and Richardson and Barr and Morgan Colopley. Uh, they need those guys uh, against what can be a pretty good Iowa pitching staff. It's not the most overpowering pitching staff when you look at them, uh, but you know, they have, you know, Trenton Wallace has, he's just pitched a ton of big 10 games. So they're going to need some of these, these guys to, to really show up this weekend against the Hawkeyes. I think for Iowa, two things have been really big for them. And one is, is Trenton Wallace. You know, this, the thing about Iowa is they, it also feels like at the same time that they've just missed in regionals, like what has been additionally heartbreaking is it seems like every year, especially on the mound, Iowa has like one or two just backbreaking injuries that keeps them from being as good as they could otherwise be. And so Trenton Wallace stepping up and, and kind of being that guy at the, at the front of the rotation, um, you know, in lieu of Jack Dreyer uh, has, has been really big. I mean, he's, you know, you'd like him to walk fewer guys, like you can nitpick it a little bit, but, but he's really been exactly what they need at the front of the rotation for a team that you were looking at at the beginning of the year. And even if you look at now, if you take him out of the equation, it's like, woof, you know, so having him give you quality and length in the rotation has been a very welcome thing for them. Offensively, Ben Norman, who has been a really nice player in the program, uh, throughout his career has seems like he's made a leap and now he's, he's really like an impact guy. He's, you know, nine homers on the year. And um, he's, he's, like I said, gone from being a nice player to being one of the better bats in the big 10. And when you combine that with Isaiah Fullard and Zeb Adrian and Austin Martin and a, and a lot of guys who have just been around the block. And that, that's what you can say most about this Iowa team is that it's a classic Rick Heller, old Iowa team. 
Um, it's amazing the way Iowa does that where it always feels like they're old. This year, of course, you had the 2020-ness to it where you everybody got a year back. That kind of adds to that a little bit um, additionally. But I think those two guys being what they are has been as big for Iowa as really anything else this season. All right, so big one there in B-Town, a lot of implications in the Big Ten race and in uh, the the NCAA tournament bubble picture. Um, I mean, even if Iowa loses this, like I don't think it's a massive deal. Maybe I have to come off the idea that, you know, we, we haven't had a fourth Big Ten team in the field for several weeks now. Maybe with an Indiana win here, you start looking at things differently, but uh, again, it's just the start of a really hard stretch for the Hoosiers. That is that is one thing to remember here that they need to they need to take advantage of this home weekend because there are still a lot of difficult things coming uh, down down the line for IU. It does. Uh, if I may, I know you're trying to transition there, but one thing that's been on my mind about the Big Ten too, just quickly, is we we saw that um, the idea now that the there are going to be 20 host sites announced. Uh, the week of May 10th to be eventually be pared down to 16. And I don't know about you, but that feels like, and I like the type of thing where they dump whatever big 10 team they think might be the champion of the big 10 in that group of 20. And then once they get to 16, depending on whether or not they win the conference that ends up being, so that's not necessarily applicable to Iowa or Indiana, unless one of those two teams really rips off a run here, but you know, if it's Nebraska or Michigan or whoever, like that seems like the kind of place where you dump a Big Ten team you think might win the title, and then you see whether or not they did, and that's how they end up determining if they if they host or not. That kind of seems like one thing that's very possible there. I agree. I uh, we didn't talk about that at the top. I genuinely don't really know what to make of it, but um, I would say that you are correct. I, w- I would expect to hear Nebraska or Michigan. Uh, whoever is winning the conference when whenever they make those announcements the week of May 10th. And then also Pitt is probably a deadlock to be included among the 20. We'll see whether any of either Pitt or the Big Ten team play well enough down the stretch to get that host spot. Uh, but I would I would strongly suspect that um, they will get announced as potential hosts. All right, Joe, uh, let's uh, let's go to your pick, and I'm going to guess that we're headed out west. Oh, you nailed it, my friend. You nailed it. Uh, first, quickly, um, one other series to kind of watch. This Teddy and I have talked offline about how this feels like um, this weekend feels a little in part because the ACC is out of conference or off in a lot of cases. Uh, it feels like um, what colloquially is known in college football is SoCon Saturday. Um, where the SEC plays their SOCON brethren often um, in terms of there not being a ton out there. So um, there's one other kind of weird series, and that's not just in the Southeast this weekend. Um, There's one series that I wanted to bring up, not to talk about in depth, but uh, Rhode Island is going to Arizona State out of conference this weekend. And I bring it up because since it's a road series for Rhode Island against a pretty good Arizona State team, Um, you know, Rhode Island is sitting in the top 50 in RPI and, you know, we project them to win the Atlantic 10, which is, uh, was kind of just a coin flip decision. I get that. But, um, you know, Rhode Island somehow, you know, if they at bare minimum win a game or somehow wins that series, as unlikely as that might sound, um, we'll definitely have to start a dialogue about the Rhode Island Rams as an at-large. I mean, at some point, yeah, you're right. They become this year's Northeastern. 
and like they just have they sh- they just keep showing up. They uh, you know they they won a series against ODU early in the year uh, before anyone was paying attention to ODU. They played ECU opening weekend. Yeah, they got swept, but those games they they aren't hurting their the old RPI. Um, when they had a series canceled due to, I believe, COVID issues, but it's the Northeast, maybe it was weather. Uh, they went down to Charlotte in March and they went one out of three, again, before we were really paying that close attention to Charlotte. Uh, they played at UConn. UConn has always been good in the RPI and, by the way, now is playing a lot better than they were earlier in the season. They won a game there. Um, you know, Now they're going to ASU they're just really following the like, just do enough to, you know, play all these hard series. Don't get swept or at least don't get swept all that often pop off a win here and there. Uh, it really does a lot for the old RPI. The a 10 is a mess. Uh, they're split into two divisions. It's really hard to get a read for who is good. They've played a vastly just disparate number of games uh, I think Rhode Island is probably legitimately the best team. And, you know, they're certainly the one that looks good in RPI, although VCU doesn't look bad. Uh, if Rhode Island, when it gets back home, I mean, they play at St. Bonnie, home against St. Joe's, at UMass, uh, that's uh, 11 A10 games. If they really run off like 10, 11 wins in those and you know, if they're if they are the best team in the A10, they should be winning at least nine of them. Uh, they would walk into the A10 tournament with a pretty good record and pretty good RPI, and we would probably have to take them very seriously as a potential at-large team were they to trip up in the A10 tournament. Yeah, one of my favorite things to watch this time of year is those teams that early on were kind of like, well, yeah, that's not going to last in the RPI, and like lo and behold, here they are just lurking still. Um, that's one of my favorite, absolute favorite things to watch in college baseball and Rhode Island is, is one of those teams. So moving on to the actual series though, uh, West coast conference, San Diego traveling to Gonzaga, fun little West coast conference series that has been made all the more fun by, by the fact that, you know, Gonzaga has gone on this run. We considered them for top 25. Uh, certainly if they win this series, it would strengthen their case. I will also note uh, ESPNU nine Eastern Saturday night. This uh, middle game of the series, getting the what are the chances treatment. you watch that live? Like I intend to watch that, but I know I'm going to watch it either on like Sunday night or Monday. What are the chances you watch that game live? Extremely high if I'm home in time. Uh, the doubleheader Saturday, ODU Charlotte depends on how long that goes. But if if I'm home in time, I will almost 100% be watching that because you know the other thing about it is. Because it's Saturday, there's fewer night games. There's just yeah, there's some. not a whole lot going on then. It's just a situation where it's like really West Coast after dark. <laughs> yeah. So I, w- I would put it at something north of like 80% chance I watch that game unless something bonkers happens. And again, if I'm not home, then that I, I will at some point be home during that game. I don't anticipate getting home that late, but um, maybe not quite for first pitch, you know, three and a half, four hour drive. So um, we we shall see. But I, I certainly am hoping to tune in. I'll put it that way. Um so this is interesting because I think it's big for the West Coast Conference too. Gonzaga coming in with an RPI of of 25. Um, I don't know that hosting is necessarily something we need to broach quite yet, although they, if they sweep this series, like mm, we'll have to see. But I, I'm thinking more from the standpoint of Gonzaga at this point, barring a bizarre collapse, is a postseason team. USD's RPI is 51. It will probably just go up by virtue of playing the series. Certainly if they take a game or two, 
they'll be in even better shape. Um, so if the WCC is, you know, looking to maximize teams in the, in the tournament and who isn't, uh, this series is huge for that. Um, the Zags have been a lot better offensively. It was a, coming into the season. I, I, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what to make of their offense, but a combination of guys who have been in the program a long time, looking at you, Brett Harris and Ernie Yake, uh, transfers, Andrew Warzel, who's transferred from, from Wofford and guys who have been healthy this year, like Guthrie Morrison has kind of cobbled together a pretty good offense. They're hitting above 300 in conference play. It's a pretty, I like the depth in the lineup. So I like that a lot. Uh, Alec Jacob on the rotation, they've moved him. He's been in a few different roles. It appears in conference play, they've moved him back just permanently into the rotation. Obviously that has gone well. He threw a no hitter a couple of weeks ago. That's pretty good in my opinion, uh, but, but really even going beyond that, he's just been really, really solid uh, in that role. S San Diego is um, finally maybe putting it together. They, they've been a little bit snake bitten, I'll say in that they haven't been in the postseason in a while, but they've had teams that I think might've been good enough to be in the postseason, but they've never really gotten the right combination of good season, good record, and the RPI kind of working out for them. Um, it seems like this year, maybe they have, that has come together a little bit for them. So this is kind of their opportunity to do that. Um, on the offense, one of the good stories there is Thomas Lubano, who's having a really good year for them. He's been around there forever. Um, one of those really long career guys. And it looks like he's having a little bit of a, a career year. The pitching staff, you know, there's focus on guys like Jake Miller, um, who's, who's having a nice year. But I think for them, I think the bullpen has been just as important, if not more important, Ryan Robinson, Ivan Romero, Kieran Shaw, Jack Hyde, just looking from the outside in. And I, I haven't watched that much USD this year, but just from the outside, looking at the numbers, it, it looks a little like they're a team that builds from the back. Their starters aren't giving them a whole lot of depth necessarily. The quality has been good, just not the depth, but they're, they're giving a lot of innings to those bullpen guys. So it, it does kind of seem like the type of team that really kind of wants to build their wins from the back and counting down the innings in the, the innings that way. So I think it should be a pretty well-pitched series. It's two good offenses though. So um, I think it should be, you know, the series of the year, the WCC. Um, it's one that coming into the year, I was hoping would hold up and be a good series in the WCC. And, and we've absolutely gotten it. The thing that really stands out to me is that USD is having this good season and they're not doing it in the way that we would have anticipated coming into the year. Uh, you know, Carter Rustad has a fair amount of like prospect ability and he's having an okay, but not like, he's not the best pitcher on, on staff kind of year. Uh, you know, Jake Miller is, and he is something of a prospect, but you know, Rustad would have been the guy that you were hearing about more coming into the year. And then Shane McGuire and Caleb Ricketts both are like the biggest offensive names and Tora Atsuka has been in the program a long time and probably will at some point play pro ball, but those guys haven't been their best offensive players. Uh, you know, so that it, it's just interesting that San Diego has been able to have the year it's had uh, with some of its best players having good years, certainly maybe not amazing years. Um, you know, McGuire is uh he has six home runs. He's walked almost twice as much as he struck out. I don't want to minimize the the year that he's having, but you know, it just isn't as good as, you know, you mentioned Luvano or um, you know, a Jack Costello who has come in as a freshman and, and uh, really been amazing for them. So I, I think that that's, that's kind of what stands out to me with USD here. We have them currently in the field of 64 right on the edge. Uh, their resumes 
weird one. All the West Coast resumes are a little weird, frankly, because again, closed system out West. Uh, but it would, uh, I, I think they're a, a definitely a legitimate uh, regional team. We'll see. Uh, we'll see how this weekend goes. But you know, Gonzaga, they uh, they've been playing really well. They went out to TCU. They won that series. So we know what they're capable of when they play their best. They're uh, they're difficult. But you know, they lost to Loyola Marymount. I mean, they can be had. And uh, you know, we'll just, we'll just have to see if if San Diego has has what it takes to beat them. I mean, my guess is that the Gonzaga will win this. I think they're a little more well-rounded than than USD, but I, I think it should be a great weekend for the WCC. And you know, the, the WCC is having a really good year. They're consistently just a really strong conference, though. And uh, I am glad to see that this is that's true this year. Uh, even while, um, you know, we thought Pepperdine was going to be really good this year. They were, they were really good last year. And while we didn't think it was going to be quite that good, I mean, given the year that Pepperdine's had, it, it, it's good to see that the WCC has not been slowed down uh, by, by that, that they, they still have a couple high caliber teams and, and are looking like that they uh, could be a two bid league when it comes time to uh, put the field together. Yeah, if you'd have told me before the year that Pepperdine is going to be what it actually is as opposed to what we thought it was going to be, I certainly would not have bet on the WCC as, as a two-bid league. So kudos to the rest of the conference, specifically these two teams, for, for propping that up a little bit. All right. So a lot to track this weekend around the country. We'll have that all covered over at BaseballAmerica.com. You can follow us on Twitter for even more analysis. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. And then we will be back here on Monday for the next edition of the Baseball America College podcast, wrapping up this week 11. So make sure you are subscribed to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app, be that Apple podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening to podcasts, uh, you can find us. So we, uh, we really appreciate everyone who, who subscribes there as well. Uh, we, uh, like I said, we got a lot to cover here this weekend. Hopefully, you know, we covered uh, all, all the, the previous stuff for you here. Uh, and, you know, we'll, uh, we'll be back here to talk more on Monday. So thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rapsodo for presenting this edition and every edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. I'll talk to you next time. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.